Should we be recording this? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm going to write about this tomorrow. So it's always dangerous to sort of like, well, I, I hate, now I see now I got myself in trouble. I just said what I want to write about tomorrow and now I'm committed to it. And if I change my mind, then people will be like, are you going to write about the things you're going to write about? But I guess you know exactly what I'm talking about. So, All right. This is why Apple doesn't talk about things in, in advance. <laughs> Yes, you linked to last Friday's Twitter saying, here's a preview of what I'm going to write about. And uh, I've been I've been refreshing Derek Fireball, waiting for it. Well, I am still writing it. It is still forthcoming. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, the one thing I've been thinking about, Big Fixer, which I think I suspect is going to uh, be somewhat related to what you're writing about, since it's related to what we've been talking about on Dithering, is this big picture meta view of like the media landscape. So one thing I've written about in the context of Facebook and usually about advertising, is how if someone posts like a link to the New York Times on Facebook and my sister posts a picture of her son, in like my feed, those are given the exact same level of prominence, right? There's a picture and then I scroll past, maybe there's an ad and I scroll past and then there's a picture of, you know, that New York Times article and a link to it. And there's this sort of commodification of content that is inherent to the way Facebook in particular presents stuff on its news feed. And it's a very fascinating sort of effect that I think, you know, really, we're only starting to see the long term impacts of that sort of of that sort of thing, if, if that makes sense. Well, and I, I, I don't think it's to be underestimated. And I do think that it is hard to understand in the moment. Uh, and, and the moment here is years long, maybe decades long. Uh, it's such a transformative change in the way media is consumed, you know, where the print format you're you're holding a copy of you know name your favorite magazine that's all you have in your hand you can't see articles from the new yorker and the atlantic and the economist at the same time they don't they they don't really compete you know magazines are a great example they do compete they compete at the newsstand though and that's why covers are so important and headlines are so important you're at the airport and your your flight is starting to board and you have nothing to read and you need to grab a magazine because otherwise, you know, you might be stuck with nothing to read, which would be horrible. Or, or the, the the airline magazine, which would be worse. Right. Yep, exactly. It matters. But this article by article competition where it's not just between the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal for your attention. But like you said, you know, the picture of your niece is competing with the picture from a major news source of a worldwide protest in Berlin. Right. That's that's not good. Right. By the way, I do have an interesting aside about the, the airplane magazine story. I remember when I first came to Taiwan back in 2003, I was in the back of the jet in the middle seat. It was a brutal flight from Detroit, Detroit to Osaka or no, 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 no. That can't be right because I was flying direct to, I was on China airlines. And the reason this matters is I was, so it's Los Angeles, Taipei, actually, I was in the back seat in the middle I had nothing to read. <laughs> and so I'm flipping through the airport magazine and I was looking at the route maps. And the woman next to me asked me, this is China Airlines. Is this, is this a Chinese airline or is, or is it a, a Taiwan, Taiwanese airline? And I'm like, I have no idea. So, I mean, I didn't know anything back then when I was coming here. So I go to the airline map and I look at the map and there are zero flights to China <laughs> and a lot of flights to Taiwan. Because back then, that was when flights were still banned between Taiwan and China. And I'm like, I think it's a Taiwanese airline. <laughs> so that the, the, the route map was actually uh, very educational in that regard. And uh, the beginning of my, of my education about sort of the Taiwan-China relationship, which I flew to Taiwan knowing basically nothing about. 
my favorite story like that, which is won't take anywhere near as long. It truly is a brief aside. But one time, I forget why, and I'm 90% certain that the backstory was that Amy was flying separately from me for some trip to the West Coast. So it wasn't just that we weren't seated together. She was on a flight by herself. But she she got to like San Francisco or whatever, and uh, I met up with her, and she was shaken, and it was because she had sat next to some man on her flight and he, she said he was rather large. She wasn't intimidated by him, but it was notable. He sat bolt upright. And this was all the way Philadelphia nonstop to like San Francisco. He'd brought nothing. He had nothing to read. <laughs> he brought no food, asked for nothing from the flight attendants, never tried to sleep, and just stared ahead. <laughs> The entire flight. And I forget what airline, none of the airlines we fly on have seatback entertainment. You know, there was, it's, you know, there was no, right. nothing on the TV. He just sat with his eyes open for five hours. Poor guy's probably terrified. Well, she, and she just said, I felt so self conscious. Like, and he wasn't <laughs> looking at her, he was just looking dead ahead. <laughs> oh, anyhow. Um, <laughs> back back to the point at hand. Uh, there's that there's that quote. Uh, I think Andrew Breitbart, obviously uh, a notorious um, uh, namesake to say the least. Uh, but he said that very famous quote, which is "Politics is downstream of culture," and I, it makes me wonder this aspect of of culture and politics being downstream from technology, where this bit about the feed instead of it being that bundle. To your point, where you're competing based on the entirety and the brand you're competing on sort of this article-by-article article basis. It, it changes the nature of these organizations. And you know, with the New York Times, for example, one of the big changes they've had is the shift to a subscription model. And they've been incredibly successful with it. And they are a real, you know, a real winner of the last few years as their numbers have exploded. But the implication of being supported by subscription versus being supported by advertisers is, you know, at the end of the day, who you answer to changes. Your boss changes, right? It's no longer the Coca-Colas of the world that want to reach everyone and thus want a view from nowhere, even-handed message and both sides, et cetera. It's now people that see you as an opposition to Trump, for example, and th that's why they're supporting you and they want a certain point of view. And so I think you can, there's a way to look at all the, brouhaha, <laughs> if I may use the term for that's happened around the times over the weekend, in a way that's almost steps back from the content of the dispute and looks at the overall structure in which it's operating. And we sort of made fun of the idea that the times had a view that, oh, if we don't publish something, it doesn't get published. That's just not the case anymore. But it was the case previously to a, to a certain extent. If you wanted a national opinion page, there were only a couple places that could happen, but now the internet is the national opinion page and the way that it spreads is Facebook and, and Google. And that changes the way that, that that should change the way the New York Times thinks about itself. And I think that's an observation that's independent of any specific decision that they make. So much is changing right now so quickly. It's hard to pin it down, but I, I will quibble. I, although I also feel like I'm using the word quibbled too much lately <laughs> but i will another name for the podcast right <laughs> i feel like i'm Quibbling. using quibble because arguing has taken on such an angry like people keep saying like we are last episode of this show it's so good to hear t people disagree with each other civilly whereas it, to me that used to be the default <laughs> 
you know, it was, I had a recent podcast with Adam Angst, publisher of Tidbits, and we were talking about the internet back in the 90s, which truly is a long time ago, and about how we used to call, refer to things as flame wars. And, and anybody who was on the internet in the 90s might recall the term. And it's like, now that's just what we call the internet. Right. Like flame wars were things that erupted and were briefly, and then moderators and moderate, whether you were officially or unofficially the moderator of wherever it erupted, your job was to put it out. Right. Now, now flame wars are the constant and moments like Oasis are the, are the exception. But I get it. And I've seen the argument that without a tribe that a subscription, a, a, a publication that answers to readers isn't going to have an audience anymore. And that, for example, that thinking that the Times can't be anything other than against Trump and Trumpism is foolhardy. I will quibble with that because I think that I think that's possible and that's one possible path. But I do I, I feel and and I'm borrowing here from NYU journalism professor and media critic Jay Rosen that one thing they need they need something and they need something to say this is our bias and and fact and truth based reporting can be that bedrock that they lean on and i feel like the reason that and and the times exemplifies it even though that i i really do think the times is out an outstanding publication and and newsroom and and a genuine you know, fourth estate, you know, in the United States and around the world. But I feel like even as, as good as they are, have been and continue to be, that in some ways they're the worst at this because they're the last to catch on that one side isn't playing that game. That they can be anti-Trump on the news page, not because they're anti-Trump on political grounds, but on the grounds that they're in favor of truth and reality. You say you quibble, but I actually think that there is something to this as well. And uh, uh, just to take a pertinent example from right now, and I think uh, Ben Smith kind of touched about this in another excellent column this week about you know what's happening in America's newsrooms, is the, the fact of the matter is, is that newspapers like The Times failed to cover what was happening to African-Americans mm -hmm. and police for decades. Mm -hmm. And part of what changed that was things like social media and the fact that it was coming in from the outside and not, and not just from people exterior and citizens filming things, but also the reporters themselves being empowered by social media. And so you have the bit you talked about with the devolvement from the, from the brand in the airport store to article by article, but it's also from like the editors being in charge to the reporters having way more agency on their own. And there being facts to support the argument that, no, there actually is truth here. You don't need to get the report from the police commissioner and the report from the citizen and say, well, one side says, one side says. You can actually see the truth because someone took a video of it. There's more documentation in the world as well, which I think has changed some of this calculus in a similar way. Uh, as another brief digression, allow me to, for a really brief digression, but allow me to object to the, uh, I see this, once you see it, once I tell you this, you'll see it everywhere in the coverage of the protest, is the, this phrase, cell phone camera footage. <laughs> like, that you it's call just camera it, footage. It's just camera footage. And in fact, probably <laughs> a much better camera than uh, most even professional news organizations even had the possibility of owning within, let's say, the last 15 years. 
you know, absolutely. I mean, you go right? back and see TV clips from the '90s, and it's jarring how right. how terrible it is. Right, and like what what details you can get by zooming in, just you know, yep. at, at, not to nerd out, but to you know, sort of nerd out that there's footage, you know, and like you know, and and they can identify a police officer because you can zoom in on this footage shot by a totally non professional shooting a protest and you can see the badge number or something like that and get it out of it. So I think disparaging, and it is disparaging, something as quote-unquote cell phone camera footage is is really way past the expiration date at this point, given the, the quality of it. But that's neither here nor there and not quite as short as I promised it would be as a digression. <laughs> a series of digressions. Uh, we, 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 are, we are on one today. The, the thing about all this, though, is the change is... It, it kind of feels like it, it's happened, right? And right. The, the 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 reality of where the time competes and what it competes on. And this isn't a statement of like, oh, of overt sort of action. If the time says, oh, our subscribers want this, so we will do this. There's a lot of talk these days, and rightly so, about structural racism. The idea is th- there's just structures in society and obstacles you face and things that push you in certain directions that are in place for African Americans that are not there for for white people, for example. Right. And the idea is it's not it's not explicit actions, it's not explicit racism. It's implicit and it's stuff that that is hard to see unless you can look take a systematic view. And this idea of there being a systematic view and understanding of how motivations change and incentives change and outcomes change is one that is is applicable broadly. I think that's a reason why I wanted to write about that point last week is because that's you know that's kind of like what I do in Techries. I want to think about the systemic aspects of technology companies, for example, or or cell phones or whatever it might be. But that sort of approach in thinking is exactly the sort of thing that is necessary to appreciate the reality of of that, that that there's nothing new happening what's being what's being revealed is what's been happening for a very very long time yes that's exactly it and i think it it undergirds you know and just to single out the times they're the ones who who for a century or more have had the slogan all the news that's fit to print and and the implication there isn't that they print every last iota of news but that if you read the times you know the big stories and here's a mammoth story that people of color have been telling us for decades that it's been happening and we collectively and the news media uh, to single somebody out has not been covering what has been clearly going on and it's citizen journalism from the ground up that has opened our collective eyes to yes you were right and it was it was a, a dereliction of journalistic duty to to let this story not be told <laughs> 